Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't have Bibles and you would like to read along, and there is Bibles uh, at the back table, and if you would like to claim one, please do so. Write down your name, and it will be yours. And if you have an app, you can open an app on your phone. It's from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, until chapter 4, verse 7. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And chapter 4, verse 7, until 7. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Maker. G'day, folks. Great to have you along today. Uh, just a quick call out to the youth church, including Year 5. If you were in that space, go and see Darcy and Brent at the back. It's time for you to head out. The rest of you, you get me. Hooray! <clears throat> My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is lovely to have you along. Uh, as Maker said, keep your, um, grab a Bible if you, don't have, if you don't own one. That's yours. And keep it open at Philippians 3. I'll pray, and we'll, um, we'll dig into that space there. Let me pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that we've got your word that uh, we've got it to be able to look at, to be able to study, to be able to inwardly digest and to be able to reflect on in terms of who we are before you and how we might better that situation, not through ourselves, but through trusting in your generous provision of a saviour, whom is Jesus. Uh, help us in that regard today. By his spirit, we pray. Amen. Rightio, uh, what, city, what countries have we got represented here? Who's from a different country? Who's got dual citizenship? Come on, what do we got here? Who we got? Yep. What do you got? Come on, shout them out. Dutch Australian, yes, yes. England, yes. South Africa, India. What else? Yes. Zimbabwe, yes. 
Okay, this is really cool. This is excellent. Now, we've got people from Zambia and the other congregation. There's Indonesian. There's Sri Lankan. There's, who else did we have? We had a New Zealander. I don't know how that person got in this morning, but anyways. Um, <clears throat> we are representative as a people of lots of different countries. Now, I want you to think about, for your particular country of origin, what are the rights and responsibilities that belong to being a citizen of that nation? Have a think about it. Do you know, as Max mentioned in his intro, do you even know what it means, what are the rights and responsibilities or the privileges and responsibilities of being recognised as a citizen of a particular nation? I wonder if you know, because it depends largely on what country you come from, what nation you belong to. But generally speaking, as Max has already said, the rights of a citizen refer to things like the political, legal or social advantages that come with being found as a citizen of that nation. The right for government or to hold office or to vote. Max, if I was an American citizen, I'd vote for you, 100%. Or maybe it's the, in fact, it was really interesting. I said in the first one, you've got the right to protection or assistance or legal representation if you're trapped in another country as a, as a nation of a different, uh, sorry, a citizen of a different nation. There's a chap visiting who was a member of DFAT and said, we hate when people say that. It's not a right, it's a privilege. And I was like, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> But if you're trapped abroad, you've got representation, consulate support as a citizen of a different nation. You've got the privilege and the, and the, the right or the benefits in regards to law, common law, owning property or the rights to social aid, you know, things that are funded by taxpayers like unemployment benefits or medical care. These are some of the rights and the privileges that you uh, receive as part of being a, a citizen of a particular nation. And responsibilities generally will run similar, although they are different. But you've got the the responsibility to be loyal to the state of which you claim citizenship, to uphold the values, to follow their laws, to defend their interests. And even if uh, in the most extreme examples, often there's a responsibility to defend your country, even in military service, if attacked or threatened. There's a responsibility, the civic responsibility to, to sorry, there's civic responsibility to participate in civic activities like voting, like paying taxes, like state service. But as I said, these rights and responsibilities differ from country to country. It's actually why it's more difficult to get into some countries than others. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'm not sure if any of you have ever tried, but if you did, you would find it hard to become a citizen of Qatar or Liechtenstein. Or Vatican City, for that matter. In fact, three of the hardest places on, uh, in the world to become uh, a citizen of. Qatar, a population of around about not quite three million people. Uh, Liechtenstein, even less, a population of like 38,000 people. Both very uh, wealthy countries that have masses of social benefit schemes that are really, well, really enviable. And as a result, it's hard to become a citizen of those nations. More difficult, though, if you want to become a, 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 a citizen of the Vatican City. Smallest country in the world, uh, both by population and size, 805 people are citizens of Vatican City. And you can't even get your citizenship via birth or, or blood. No one is, is, is automatically given citizenship to Vatican City. No, not unless you are employed by the Vatican or the Catholic Church do you get citizenship in Vatican City. Very, very hard. What are the rights and the responsibilities? I'll let you look it up and you can see if you want to apply. (laughs) Don't do it! No. In the passage today, as we look at Philippians, Paul essentially is arguing that everyone in the world has at least dual citizenship. Everyone in the world, you included, have dual citizenship. 
you have at least, everyone has at least one physical citizenship status to their country of origin. You might be eligible for more. Dutch Australian, English Australian, American Australian. You may have eligibility for more than one physical citizenship, but everyone also carries a spiritual citizenship. And this spiritual citizenship governs your rights and responsibilities, if you will, afterlife, beyond death. Now, did you notice, as Maker read it out for us, did you notice those two camps, those two different spiritual citizenship categories? as Paul mentions them there. Let me point them out to you really quick because we're going to actually dive into these and look at these in, in more, uh, with more focus. Verse 20, there are those whose citizenship is in heaven. There's one camp. And in contrast to that, and in profound and important contrast to that, is, a, is a, uh, verse 17, those whom Paul describes as people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's the two spiritual citizenships. And as I said, the differences could not be more profound or important. And we're going to spend this morning looking at the characteristics and the rights and responsibilities of both. So let's have a look at uh, chapter 3. Let's start, with, let's start with the rights of a citizen from heaven. Now, what do you think they are? I mean, literally, there are, it's mind-boggling. The benefits of being considered as one of God's children, as a citizen of his eternal kingdom, that is obviously a huge category. There are many, 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 many things we could say. So we're going to limit ourselves just to look at the ones that Paul mentions here in this chapter. In fact, if you've got a service outline, you've got your little sermon insert, insert I've put them down there. The, the rights or the, the privileges of being a citizen of heaven just that Paul mentions in this section. See, not only as a citizen of heaven, not only have you been gifted a righteousness from God through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember that righteousness is that idea of a right standing, a peace with God. Not so much that I'm at peace with him, but he's at peace with me, which is more important. And it's from God through faith in Christ Jesus. We saw it last week in chapter 3, verse 9. Not only that, there's the promise of resurrection from the dead. That is the enduring life beyond the grave. Also last week, 3, verse 11. But I want you to notice today, verse 20. Those who have been gifted heavenly citizenship have been guaranteed another privilege or a right. And it's that idea of a personal saviour in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is significant because it's not just purely metaphorical. It's in a real sense that Jesus is the saviour, the personal of saviour of all whom are his. Actually, he's really going to show up and rescue his people. It's why Paul can speak about citizens of heaven eagerly awaiting. We'll dig into that a little bit in a minute. But we can eagerly await as citizens of heaven because Jesus is really, literally returning. Now that's significant news, isn't it? That's actually quite significant to think about. This is a big thing. In fact, I was, I was about, almost going to say it's a bit like having Superman as your close personal friend. I mean, you can imagine that'd be pretty awesome. Imagine Superman being your best buddy. That'd be crazy good. But then I realized, in fact, that analogy would be selling citizens or heavenly citizenship way too short. A, because Jesus has no kryptonite, <laughs> right? He's already conquered sin, death, and the devil. He's already the king of the universe. He's the God of all things, proven by his resurrection. And B, unlike Superman, he's not just going to show up to save his people. He actually will transform us to share in his glorious resurrected physicality too. Superman doesn't do that for anyone. In fact, did you notice that promise there? Did you notice that benefit of being a citizen of heaven? Look at verse 21. 
Speaking of our Saviour, Jesus, who is to return, Paul says of him, verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's a pretty amazing thing to consider. In fact, I think the older you get, the more you probably consider that pretty special, pretty awesome. And it doesn't matter what your age is, you know and you ought to know and you probably already realise the limitations of your body. What does it mean that we'll, our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body? What does that mean precisely? I'm not entirely certain, but I'm certain that it's good. In fact, we get some clues from the Bible. We get some clues from the gospel writers, from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. We get some clues about the nature of Jesus' resurrected body that I think we can actually look to and get a little excited about. For example, these will come up on your screen. They'll flash up. Write down the references if you want to check them out a little bit later. But for example, we learn from Luke that it's not merely a spiritual experience, but an embodied physical experience that we can look forward to. In fact, Jesus makes this point explicit in Luke 24, 39. His friends thought they saw a ghost. And he says, no, no, reach out and touch me. See that I've got flesh and bones. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as I had. There's a real physicality to Jesus' resurrected body. That's cool. That's exciting. And he still enjoys eating, clearly. That's exciting. Hey, that's really cool. You've got him cooking breakfast in John 21, 12. You've got him eating fish in that same scene in Luke 24, 41. Jesus, still in his physicality, enjoys eating. Now, that excites the living daylights out of me. That is cool. And it excites me because I think about things that taste good now. Imagine this, and maybe I've used this example before and I can't remember. I talk to lots of people, so if I repeat myself, I'm apologizing in advance. Think about this. I think about mangoes. I love mangoes. Anyone like mangoes? Who likes it? Who doesn't love it? Who doesn't love a mango? Get out. <laughs> mangoes are the most amazing thing in the world imagine this i can even in my fallen state even in my imperfect imperfect nature still eat a mango and go that is incredibly good and can praise god if i can do that in even in my sinful fallen state how much better will mangoes taste in heaven in the sense of when there is no obstruction between the link of that which is good and the glory that god deserves how much, how, much, how much better can a mango taste? Stacks and stacks. Jesus is not just physical. He enjoys food. We will look forward to it. In fact, think about how many examples are given in the Bible about the wedding feast that, uh, that citizens of heaven are invited to. Something really cool about that. And while he's still clearly embodied and physical, it's not quite in the same way that we experience physical embodiment. There's something else about his glorious body that's a little bit different. It's not sort of limited to time and space and matter in the same way that we presently are. I mean, have a look again at Luke 24, 31, Luke 24, 36. It has him disappearing and appearing in locked rooms at different spaces. All of a sudden he's there, all of a sudden he's not. He's physical. He's touching his flesh and bone and yet he's not limited to this space. Again, what does that precisely mean for us? I'm not quite sure, but I'm quite sure it's awesome. You know, you could really spend all day reflecting on the rights or the privileges or the benefits of being considered a a citizen, a future citizen of heaven. And as I said many times previous, the thing I get excited about is it will take take 
precisely an eternity to fully appreciate them all and enjoy them all. That's exciting stuff. And as Christians, if you are someone who has put your confidence in Christ to be found at peace, righteous, in right standing with God, then you should spend some time thinking and thanking and rejoicing in God for those benefits and privileges that you look forward to. In fact, if I can be honest, I think this is where we've got the potential, possibly we're prone as evangelicals, not to think about this as much as we ought. I don't know about you. I personally feel like my rejoicing in the Lord is not my strong suit. <laughs> All right? But it's not something that we should, that you or I should neglect. Genuinely rejoicing and feeling and reflecting on the privileges of being counted as one of God's own children. And using that genuine building excitement to fuel our desires for growing obedience. That's a good thing to do. That's an excellent thing to do. That will look like something. Which actually quite naturally and helpfully leads us to the next point. Because it's not just the rights of heavenly citizenship that we ought to focus on here, but also the responsibilities of heavenly citizenship. You know, just as being a citizen in a physical realm of an earthly nation, there are responsibilities of being a citizen of heaven that ought shape our lives in the here and now. I mean, did you notice some of them in the passage? There's stacks of them. If you're a grammar nut or nerd, I like grammar, so if you're a nerd, you're with me. Uh, you can spot these. You can spot these by recognizing or noticing the imperative verbs. They are the command type instruction that Paul gives. Look at those. You'll see the responsibilities of heavenly citizenship. The first is, well, it's imitation. It's the first responsibility of those who are carrying a heavenward passport. It's to imitate. Look at it there in verse 17. Open your Bibles there. Look at it in verse 17. This is what he says. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have um, us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, do you, do you hear the concept of imitation there? The, the word's not used, but the concept is there. This is the first responsibility of future citizens of heaven. It's to follow Paul's example. Now think about imitation for a minute. There's that old saying, imitation is the highest form of flattery. You've heard that before? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. If you're a teacher, when I was a teacher in, uh, in teaching kids in the uh, year four, 10-year-olds, I'd constantly have someone come up to me, oh, Mr. Flynn, Jimmy's copying me again. He's imitating me. To which my response was always, wow, he must think your work is awesome. He can't think of anything better, and so he's copying you. That's terrific. You should actually take that as a badge of honor. Well done. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, but I want to tweak that a little bit because it's important to note here, Paul is not saying, follow and imitate me because I'm such a red-hot example in and of myself. No. <laughs> now, we've already heard him acknowledge last chapter, a few verses up, chapter 3, verse 12, that he's not already fully matured that he's not obtained all this, that he's not arrived at the end goal. Paul realizes in and of himself there's still work to be done here. There's still maturing to be had. He's not the best example. No, but they should imitate or follow Paul's example of trusting solely in Jesus, of putting their confidence in Christ. And they should keep their eyes on those who live as we do, those who put no confidence in the, in the flesh, but as Brit and Andy so aptly acted out here, are pressing on to win the prize for which Jesus has, has called them heavenward in Christ. Uh, sorry, which God has called them heavenward in Christ Jesus. To win the prize that Christ has won for them. Press on. Imitate people like that. 
People determined to become what they are already in Christ. Now, think about that for a minute. Become what you are in Christ. It's got startling implications, hasn't it? It's got startling implications in lots of aspects of life. But let me just just tap into one particularly that you, you should know if you're a Christian person here. It's got startling implications for the way you think about personal evangelism. I was talking to our Bible study group. We were sort of banding this around during the week. You know, how many of us and how many of you balk at sharing the gospel with your non-Christian friends or family either because you think you don't know enough or you're worried that they'll call you a hypocrite? They'll call you a hypocrite because they know you're a lousy example of a Christian. They've seen you at your worst and it turns out you're no different to them. Anyone else feel that tension? <laughs> Do you feel that tension? You should. Good. You are. And so am I. I'm a hypocrite. It's true. But if you think the Christian message is one of, come and follow my personal example because I've got it all sorted, you've neither understood nor preached the gospel. If you think it's come and follow me, I'm red hot, you've not understood or you've never preached the gospel. But to admit to a non-Christian friend that you're just as busted, just as tempted, just as sinful, in as much need of a saviour as they are, to own that up front and then encourage them to follow you as you follow Christ, that they can and ought imitate you as you repent and wholly put your confidence in Jesus because he is the saviour, that is the gospel, friends. That is the call that we're making. That is the call you ought be making. You can and ought encourage people that way. And as a future citizen of heaven, imitate that. It's your first responsibility. What's the second one that Paul talks about here? He talks about eagerly awaiting Jesus' return. Now, we, we mentioned this already, but I want to sort of dig into this a little bit more because there's a distinct shape and character that we ought to notice and apply. What, is, what does it mean to eagerly await for something? I mean, I think about it, it's, it's almost a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Because usually we think of waiting as an entirely passive process. I'm just waiting around. What are you doing, waiting around? No, no but, but to put an adverb on it like eagerly, it changes the meaning entirely. It's a very active thing, eagerly await. I mean, think about the last time that you were waiting for something, whether it be something in the post or maybe the last time you were expecting a visit from a long-lost friend or family member that you hadn't seen for years. Maybe COVID has separated you for that long and you're eagerly awaiting that reuniting. That's eagerly, You eagerly await, don't you? You busy yourself, you prepare for their arrival, you clean the house, you wash the floors, you change the sheets and towel. Don't you watch the clock as the hour draws nearer? Don't you keep going to the window and looking out lest you miss the moment they arrive in the driveway? Isn't that what it means to eagerly await? As citizens of heaven, our responsibility, we're called to eagerly await the return of Jesus, to do all that is necessary to prepare ourselves and others for his arrival, not because he might not come if we don't, but because we desire to honour him as he deserves. Because Jesus is not just a long-lost friend or family member that's been cut off during COVID. He's the powerful king of the universe. He's him who has brought all things under his control. If you aren't eagerly awaiting his return, I'm worried you might have missed the memo on who he is. Friends, are you eagerly awaiting Jesus' return? It's one of your responsibilities if you're a citizen of heaven. And if you're not, then it's time to ask the question, why not? 
Question uh, number three, though, responsibility. Third responsibility of a citizen of heaven. Chapter four, verse one. Stand firm in the Lord in this way is what Paul says to them here. Stand firm in the Lord in this way. In fact, this is a really helpful and necessary reminder. Actually, it sort of helpfully balances out the responsibility to eagerly await because it reminds us that we need to stay grounded and alert. Eagerly await and stand firm. Don't get all giddy and giggly as you await for Christ's return, though it is exciting. Stand firm. And the very fact that he calls them to stand firm, what does it suggest? It suggests that there'll be opposition or pressure to fold. You tell someone, hey, just, just you know, get, your, get yourself steady, it means there's something coming. And where will the pressures come from to, to crumble and fold? Well, from a myriad of places. Think this for a moment to the Philippian church. The pressures to buckle and follow something other than Jesus were everywhere. In fact, ancient Philippi, we learn, as a Roman colony, was known for its very proud nationalism. Filled with retired soldiers. It's in a pretty particular trade route, very helpful these were guys who had obviously, you know, well, they obviously were very patriotic. After all, it had been them who had helped to either defend or advance the Roman Empire, making it the world superpower of the time. They're proud of their citizenship. In fact, Paul, read the letter to the Acts. Uh, sorry, read the, the um, book of Acts. Paul makes mention many times about the great advantage of Roman citizenship, of which he actually held. It was a great advantage. It was much to be prized in the ancient world. So do you think that Paul and the Philippians, the Philippian Christians preaching another more significant and prestigious citizenship would have been well received in Philippi? No, not at all. And clearly this was the case, causing Paul to remind them of their responsibility as citizens of a higher realm, even higher than Rome, stand firm in the Lord, trusting in his rule, trusting his promise to return, trusting his promise to transform, even in the face of ongoing opposition. And it's no different today, folks. It is no different today. If you're a Christian here today and therefore a future citizen of heaven, you'll find opposition to, and pressure to compromise or give up on your allegiance to Jesus in a myriad of ways. And Paul is telling you, telling us to stand firm in the Lord also. But what does, it look, what does it look like for us, folks? <clears throat> in fact, here's where I want to change tack a little bit. If you're following along in the sermon outline, I also want to leave the uh, rights and responsibilities of heavenly citizenship for a minute. And I want to talk a little bit more about the characteristics of the opposite spiritual citizenship. Remember, everyone's got a spiritual citizenship. It's either enemies of the cross of Christ or it's heavenly, spiritual, uh, he- heavenly citizenship. I want to look at those characteristics of people that Paul describes as enemies of the cross of Christ. Because this is where most of the pressure to compromise and fold will come from. You should expect that. You should actually understand and appreciate that because we are really in different camps. We've got really different ideas about things. I want you to look at the differences between these two camps because Paul describes four characteristics of those he classes enemies of the cross of Christ. Have a look at them there. They're four statements in verse 19. I want to look at them in reverse order than Paul does. I want to show you how opposite they are to the thinking of those who are following Jesus. Let's do them in reverse order because Paul starts with the destination and comes into the present. I want to start with the present and then finish with the destination. Look at it, the last line of verse 19. though. This is what he says of them. He says, their mind is set on earthly things. First characteristic of someone who's living as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Mind is set on earthly things. That's their focus. 
Now, again, not hard to understand or appreciate, is it? Earthly things are real and visible and felt directly. We all attend and need to consider earthly things. That's not a problem. Everyone did. Otherwise, you, you got dressed, you ate breakfast this morning, you, can, you attended to earthly things, didn't you? Of course you did. But the difference is to set your mind there. That's the difference, to set your mind, to limit your focus only to the things that are earthly and visible, to at the exclusion of those, others, of those other things, uh, invisible and eternal. To set your mind on the earthly and invisible is to live as an enemy of Jesus who calls his followers to pay attention and give greater weight to those things that are unseen and eternal. In fact, Paul will say that explicitly in 2 Corinthians 4.18. I think it'll come up on your screen. Have a look at it later. Read from 16 to 18. (laughs) He'll say that explicitly. It's a classic characteristic of those who are enemies of the cross, only concerned with the here and now, unwilling or unaware to think about the there and then. You know, there's that old saying again that's, uh, oh, she's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Someone said that to me recently. I was like, wow, that's an interesting take. I think it's the exact opposite. <laughs> In fact, um, Mike and I were doing some walk-up evangelism with our gappers, with Miffy and Trinity recently. We went in the town. One of the conversations that we had was with uh, two young ladies in their sort of late 20s, early 30s. Uh, and I asked them, what's your opinion about Jesus? You got an idea? What's your thoughts about the man? And after a few little, so they hang in there a little bit politely for a little while until one of them just interrupted and said, look, I'm not really interested in thinking about Jesus. I've got more important issues to deal with at the moment. I'm trying to think through some things at work. I've got a family and I'm doing some house renovations. You know, this is just not on my radar. That was a truthful and tragic response. Somehow she's so convinced that paying attention to God or the the God of creation, the God of her creation, was unnecessary or unimportant because her mind was set on earthly things. It's truthful, but it's tragic. My question is, is it you? Are you set on earthly things or have you got a wider view of things that not just are visible and seen, sorry, visible and temporal, but unseen and eternal? It's a massive problem to have your mind set or your focus set on earthly things because the second characteristic of living as an enemy of the cross of Christ often follows. Again, it's in verse 19, one line up. Their glory is their shame, is what Paul says here. Now, what does that mean? It's a really strange statement. It doesn't quite make sense. Glory and shame are opposites. How can they exist in the same sentence here? What Paul is saying, in essence, is those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ because they give no consideration to God or heavenly realities, then they quickly and easily, mistakenly, take pride in things they ought to be ashamed of. Because their standards are focused on earthly things, they ignore or overlook, and in so doing reject God's standards, which are the only standards worth actually understanding. I mean, the very obvious modern example is the whole pride movement. Now think about this for a second, and I don't want this to trigger you. I want you to hear carefully. The whole pride movement has moved well beyond advocating for the basic human rights and the fair treatment of those in the LGBTQI plus community. Do you hear that? It's moved well past the advocacy of basic human rights and fair treatment of those people, which is absolutely right and necessary. But it's moved squarely into the mode of celebrate or else. And that's bang out of order. There's a distinct difference here. 
I mean, if you if you watch the football or, or if you follow the football, think of the manly Christian footballers this week. There's an example to think about over, over morning tea. But I want you to hear this very clearly. See, as a Christian, as a future citizen of heaven, I ought acknowledge and respect people of different beliefs and religions and lifestyles, and so should you. You ought to acknowledge and respect that. But when those things stand in direct opposition to God's plan and purpose for human flourishing, should I join in celebrating and advocating for these positions? Heck no. No, I love people too much to glory in their shame. I care too much to be happy about people who make themselves enemies of God most high. I'll respect the rights of people to ignore God. I didn't continue. I didn't hammer that girl on the park bench. I respected her right to ignore God. I left her with a little pointy question, no doubt. But, but I didn't sit there and argue her as though I could argue her into the kingdom. But I find no joy in it. Neither did Paul. Neither should anyone who follows Jesus. And did you notice that that actually is Paul's demeanor when he's reflecting on those he calls enemies of the cross of Christ? Did you notice his demeanor? So he doesn't label people enemies of the cross of Christ and then start up a war chant for Christians to sharpen your pitchforks and let's chase them off the cliff, Lord of the Flies style. No. You liked that one, did you? <laughs> no. Even if, and hear this again, even if some Christians and churches in the past have made mistakes in that regard or engage in activities and attitudes that resemble something similar, that is not Paul's demeanor here. Look at verse 18 again. What does he say? He says it is with tears in his eyes, with deep sadness and anguish anguish in his heart that he recognizes that some people are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. And the reason he's upset and concerned for them is because of where it leads. It's a loving response. It's a loving thing to do. And the reason... Well, the reason is, it's, look at the next two characteristics. What, what is it that he's so upset about for these folk? We'll look at verse 19, the second line. It's because their God is their stomach. That's weird. What does it mean? It means he's upset and he's, he's with tears in his eyes recognizing that some people just haven't understood who God is. In fact, instead of worshipping the one true God, they let their passions and appetites direct them. They allow themselves to be driven by desires, whatever those desires might be, and they make those desires little g-gods. I mean, the, the common way of saying this is follow your heart. That is tragic. That is not good. Your heart is by nature and choice inclined not towards God, but in your own direction. It's not good for you. And ultimately, it's not good for you because of the first line of uh, verse 19. It's because their destination is destruction. That's where it ends up. And if you read that rightly, friends, if you actually read that sentence rightly, as the opposite of being a citizen of heaven, which you ought, that's the contrast being made here, it means that anyone who is living as an enemy of the cross of Christ, for whatever reason, is presently hell-bound. And I say for whatever reason, because don't for a second think this is about a, a, a pride thing or the LGBT community. You think about our Australian culture. You think about the glory and the shame of the guy who can drink 20 schooners in an evening. Or the people who brag about their, I don't know, is it Tinder? I don't know what that means, but something to do with Tinder. That's what I'm talking about. That's a problem. Notches on their belt like there's something to be lauded as an achievement. 
People who glory in their shame about how they diddled someone, whether it be the tax man or the person on Facebook who they sold a lemon to. And we glory in the shame? Heck no! We've misunderstood who God is. We're being directed by our passions and desires and the destination is destruction. Presently hell-bound. Now, just let that sink in for a second, friends. People who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, whether it be the obvious spot the sinner that we can look at that, that nasty baddie over there. No, it's not just them. It's even people who are trusting in their own performance to be right with God, to be good enough for God. These folk are not future citizens of heaven. Their spiritual passport is future citizens of hell. Their spiritual destination is to meet God face to face in judgment and it will not end well. Friends, how much time do you spend thinking about that and reflecting on that reality? Because it is people that you know, people who you love, people who you ought want better for that I know, for me I'm thinking of this, who I know are presently hell bound, unable, unaware, unwilling to do anything about that. I'm not comfortable with that situation, friends. I'm not happy with the present trajectory of many people I know and love. I can love and respect someone and disagree with them wholeheartedly at the same time and want better for them. So what do we do with that? How much time do you spend thinking about that? And when you think about it, what do you do without just turning a blind eye and pretending it isn't so just to soothe your own conscience? Well, I'm going to skip over, if you like, here, friends. I'm going to skip over the next responsibilities of the citizens in heaven for the sake of time in your outline. I'm going to skip over that and land on the last one. In fact, I'm not going to give it due consideration either because it's just thicker and richer and deeper than I've got time to do. But what does it say there? The last responsibility as a citizen of heaven, don't be anxious, but pray. In fact, look at it. Let's read the full verse. Chapter 4, verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. As I said, this is deeper and thicker and richer than I'm going to be able to explain at the minute. But Christian brothers and sisters, Paul is not telling us to be unconcerned about the plight of our non-Christian friends. But rather, let your right concern about things like this drive you to your knees in prayer. And not just the concern for those who are as yet hell-bound or unsaved, but in every and any situation, pray, request, petition God on all matters of importance that will otherwise breed anxiety in you because you can't control them. And do this with thanksgiving, mind you, it says, because God is in control. Because God already knows, because God is already working to bring about his glorious plans and purposes in every circumstance. And friends, when you can, when you can grab that, when you, can hold, when you realize and trust and put your whole weight on this, you'll understand what Paul means in verse 7. Have a look at verse 7 again, because this is what he says. Don't worry about anything or don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you just to think on that. I'm a little bit over, but I'm just going to just do this bit here. I want you to think about what does that mean, the, the, uh, the peace of God that passes understanding. I want to draw a distinction between that, which Paul is talking about, and that manufactured feeling inside you, that kind of peace feeling that people talk about when they're trying to justify either a rash or a selfish decision or poor behavior. You know that sort of, 
yeah, I just decided, you know, I'm going to leave my wife and move in with a babysitter, and I just have prayed, and I feel a real peace about it. You know, it's it's sort of funny, but it's not. It's tragic, and I've heard sort of comments to this uh, to that effect. I've just prayed about it, and I feel peace. Is that what he's talking about? No, it's not that. What Paul's talking about here is a supernatural certainty that God is in control in all circumstances. And because of that, a desire and a willingness to trust and obey him, whatever the cost, because you're in Christ and therefore a future citizen of heaven. What could make me anxious if Christ is mine and I'm his? Now, there's an obvious question that I haven't asked that needs to be asked this morning. (laughs) See, we've looked at the rights and the responsibility of heavenly citizens. We've looked at the characteristic traits of those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. But I haven't yet asked you to check your spiritual passport. You need to do that, friends. Which is it? Which are you? Check your spiritual passport. Which are you? Are you a citizen of heaven solely putting your confidence in Christ? Or are you living as an enemy of the cross? either unconcerned about your position before God or placing your confidence in works of the flesh. We talked about it last week. Confidence in your performance or your family heritage or your religious observance. See, when I say check your spiritual passport, friends, don't pat yourself down and look in your wallet. or It's not going to be found on a piece of paper like a baptismal certificate. And it's not bestowed upon you because of your last name or by the declaration of a priest or a pastor or an imam or a shaman or a guru in a pointy hat and frilly dress. No. And it's not something that you achieve by trying really hard and having at least a 75% church attendance record. No. Your heavenly passport is tattooed on your heart, if I can use that expression, by God himself to those who ask and trust Jesus. How do you you check your your heavenly, your your, your spiritual citizenship? You check your heart. Are you operating out of the natural heart, the one that Ezekiel describes as a heart of stone, or from the new heart that God gives to those who, who put their trust in Jesus, a heart of flesh? See, friends, as I finish up, you may not be able to gain citizenship in Qatar or Liechtenstein or Vatican City, for that matter, very easily. But the or citizenship in heaven, it's not only on offer, <laughs> but encouraged by the administration, by the presiding king of the kingdom. In fact, commanded by the God of the universe. This is where your citizenship ought lie. This is where your allegiance ought be allegiance or be and the benefits incomparable undescribable unimaginable friends what's your what's your spiritual citizenship look like have you got your heavenly passport i want to say don't leave today without it put your trust in christ if you want to talk more about that of course come and talk to me i'll talk to one of the christians that brought you along if you're new or visiting but let's pray before we um, sing. I think we're going to sing a new song, but let me pray first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that by your Spirit you would help us to actually do that which we cannot do by ourselves, um, assess our hearts well, to actually really dig down and see uh, as in terms of our spiritual citizenship, who do we belong to? Do we belong to you and, and our citizens, future citizens of heaven? 
Or are we living as enemies of the cross of Christ, either through ignorance or arrogance, and therefore hell-bound and in need of a saviour? Father, don't let us leave without actually answering that question and at that very same moment, recognising that the opportunity, the invitation to become a citizen of heaven through trusting Christ is your gift to all who recognise they need it. And we pray that it would be everyone here. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.